welcome to a new episode of That Time When, the comedy history podcast hosted by myself, Barnaby King, and my partner, Amelia Edwards. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. So today, Amelia, I have a story for you, but first we have to talk about a few things, right? Because I know that you are a well-known and raving misogynist. I am a misogynist, that's really true. Mm. Women should never have been given the right to vote. No, and you think that, uh, if I've got my notes here, you think women shouldn't have library cards or be botanists? Well, we all know that women can't read and thus shouldn't be allowed to get library books out of the library just in case they try. Mm, They might eat them. They might, or do something worse. And for as for botany, absolutely, women should have nothing to do with flowers. No. no they are far too suggestive yes. for women's frail natures. Yeah, so you would never countenance the possibility, say, of a female James Bond? No, never. Women should never be spies. They can't hold guns. They can't keep secrets. The second a woman first picked up a gun in the 1600s, she immediately dropped it and it shot the king's horse. Oh, no. Well. So... Women should never be allowed to be spies. Women should never be allowed to be spies, you say? So they can't be spies? No, definitely not. Well, you're wrong, (gasps) you raving misogynist. (laughs) Of course, Amelia is not actually a raving misogynist. Just want to make that clear. Yes, I am. Oh, you are? Yes. Oh. But you got me interested in feminism. Shh. (laughs) Was that a cover all along? Yes. How much (laughs) of the rest of my life is a lie? All of it. And yet again, none of it. Are you gaslighting me? (laughs) Don't be silly, gaslighting doesn't exist. (laughs) You only think that because you're crazy. (laughs) Uh, Well, so the reason we had that that little riff is that today, on that time when, I'm going to look at a fascinating figure in history whose identity is unknown, even to this day. So while James Bond can wander around and be known in every bar in the world, ah, James Bond, martini, shaken, not flung through a vortex of highly magnetic scientific compressors. Except that one time he asked for Stella Artois. I thought it was Heineken. Oh, it might have been Heineken. Yeah, because there's, there's that whole thing. In, I think it's Casino Royale. Yeah. They, like, they're moving away from that. Like someone offers him a martini. He's like, damn it, I don't care. Which is like... Why? A martini is a nice drink. It is quite a nice drink, yeah. Yeah, There are others I prefer. I like a margarita. That's true, but I can't really imagine um, your stylish, very English (laughs) spy being like, No, no, senora. I will have a margarita. (laughs) I will have a frozen margarita. Heavy on the slush. (laughs) Uh, No, it has to be a clear drink, doesn't it? It really does. Well, anyway, so James Bond, known in all the bars in the world, right? Yep. What a chump. What a what a, what a useless spy. I he have is. no idea how he doesn't get caught all the time. Exactly. I mean, so the the woman I'm going to talk about today was such a good spy. It's hard to tell how much she actually did, whether or not she even existed. We don't know her name. Like it's likely that she did something. How much? We don't know. Okay, so I've got to hold you up here. So basically, this woman might not have existed. Well, okay, so there's definitely... Okay, the woman I'm going to talk about definitely did at least one important thing. Okay. What we don't know is how much she actually then eventually did, because as you're going to see, 
there is quite the history of female spies in the American Revolutionary War. I'm going to talk about a few of them in particular. So let's just think about the era at the time and the needs of the American army versus the British army. Because it's pretty well known that the Americans were severely outnumbered and outmatched in terms of equipment and weapons and the like. Uh, there are some songs in Hamilton that deal with this very thing. Honestly, that's the only reason that I knew about it was because <laughs> just then in my head I was being like, we're outmanned, outgunned. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I've got a lot to thank Lin-Manuel Miranda for in my knowledge. Take another go at his name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've got a lot to thank Lin-Manuel Miranda for. It's really hard to say. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Give me a <laughs> I'm leaving all this in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot to thank Lin-Manuel Miranda for in my it. early Yay. understanding of American history, just because I don't think I know very much about the revolution, except that the UK lost. Yeah, I mean, uh, the most I really knew came from a uh, Radio 4 comedy series starring Andy Hamilton called Revolting People. Oh, yeah. But uh, how much of that is really true? I mean, very little. After a while, they start riffing on films instead. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's a Casablanca ripoff, for example. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that's like, gets you a little bit interested. You maybe learn a little bit. And, like, a lot of it's just, you know, comedy. But, yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I, I learned a lot from Hamilton. I listened to it quite a lot when I had a job uh, in a warehouse during a summer that was incredibly warm. So I desperately needed something to get my mind <laughs> off the fact that the third floor of this warehouse was essentially, uh, the air was basically soup. I think the main thing that I learned from Alan, from the Hamilton musical is that if you are going to become a famous politician, you need to announce your name repeatedly as soon as you enter a room. I think Boris Johnson does that. Oh my god. Yeah. But it's not in musicals. That's true. That is a shame. That's true, yeah. Well, anyway, so uh, what we have here is we have two forces that are unevenly matched. Okay. We have a much smaller American force who do not have much in the way of equipment. So significant portions of the war were fought using guerrilla warfare. Yeah. And for those who may not know, the term guerrilla warfare comes from uh, Spanish, meaning little war. Guerrilla. Exactly. And it's a type of warfare that was used typically when one group of combatants is much smaller than the other. Uh, they utilize stealthy tactics like ambushes, sabotage, hit and run tactics, using their superior maneuverability to outfox the larger opponent. So, of course, if you're engaging in this type of warfare, then you need adequate communications and, most importantly for today, you need accurate information on your enemy. So the Americans used a great deal of guerrilla warfare tactics, though they wouldn't have called it that because that seems to the term seems to originate in the early 19th century. It's in the, from the Napoleonic era. It is, wars. yes, it's in the peninsula. Absolutely, um, because that was the type of warfare that got used by the Spanish against the French, which is the reason why we call it guerrilla warfare. <laughs> which is why we call it guerrilla warfare although that said I have always loved the idea that it's actually you know you've got to break down the walls of a zoo and get like 10,000 oh, right, yes. mountain apes to help you on your side right. I thought you were just going to say like it's warfare with very very small people no bigger than your thumb <laughs> no 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 it's King Kong warfare no it's us we're tiny people, we're gnomes. <laughs> no, it's gigantic warfare, and they all just throw, um, like, barrels down the mountainside at the French troops. Well, Donkey Kong. 
Yes. Okay, cool. Well, no, so it's not that. But it, it, these sort of tactics that I'm talking about, not that you're talking about, uh, they were used, they were basically the same. Like the Americans utilised a lot of it as well. And in order to gather intelligence on British movements and plans, uh, spy networks were set up. And one of the more famous and successful spy networks was known as the Culper Ring, which was based in British-occupied New York between the years of 1778 and 1780. It was started at the behest of George Washington, who was making changes to intelligence gathering from a more military to a more civilian-based spy force. Uh, it was largely headed, it seemed, by three men, Abraham Woodhull, Robert Townsend, and Benjamin Talmadge. Those are such early American names. I know, names. isn't it wonderful? Aren't those all names of founding fathers as well? Quite possibly. Maybe not Robert. Is there a Robert? Oh god, I don't know. There were a lot of founding fathers. I guess. Yeah. I'm not going to look into it. It's so much easier having British history where you're like, William the Conqueror, done! <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we, we've, we've got used to sort of... Over time, we've got used to narrowing down the field a bit. So we probably started off with, like, hundreds of people, and then you narrow it down as as times go by. We, we, we've, we're just better at history, is what I'm saying. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to our American listeners, please don't hate us. <laughs> please don't hate how superior we are to, you know. <laughs> I am just joking. Um, but anyway, so these three uh, seem to have been the main people involved. They did go by code names. Uh, and it seems that the identities of many members of the Culper Ring were kept secret from one another from some of the people higher up from George Washington himself so it's hard to kind of know exactly how many people are this was like an efficient spy ring Jesus okay how do you keep the, the names of the spies secret from the person who's in charge they're, they're presumably they're just known to the people that they're directly reporting to oh my god and the, okay. group, and the group would write messages to each other uh, with codes in them in their correspondence and they'd had some like classic spy tropes, like they'd have secret signals and messages that they would write in invisible ink as nice. well. Which nice. I love that you've got a spy network actually using invisible ink. It's so exciting when they actually do that. Yeah. I thought it was made up. I know, ex that's exactly what I thought as well. Because like, when I first read this, I was like, invisible ink using what? Because mostly I knew it as like lemon juice. Can you use like urine? Uh, can you, can you, I swear <laughs> to God. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you can. But uh, what they did was they used uh, iron salts and water. Okay. And apparently that produces an invisible ink as well, which, oh. so, like with lemon juice, heated up. Yeah, the message. Oh, who knew? Yeah, I know, right? Pretty cool. Uh, so, Robert Townsend was able to gather a great deal of information on the British Navy, mm -hmm. but not much on the British Army. Okay. Now, obviously... Britain history is known for its navy, so it's like, that is yeah. important that you know the movements of British shipping lanes and everything like that. But, of course, when you're talking about fighting on the uh, east American coast of soil. America, yeah, you need to know the movements of the actual army. Yeah. I actually have no idea what part the British Navy played in the uh, revolution. Presumably a reasonable amount, because you'd have to ship things over. Yeah, I think it was mostly sending over... Hessian mercenaries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the 10,000 German people that we hired to do our dirty work. <laughs> yeah, <Yes>. basically. <laughs> oh, dear. But, I mean, there, there were some other uses as well. Obviously, getting supplies shipped over and everything like that. And there were prison ships as well, which will come up later. Ooh. Yeah, I know. I know. Doing that classic teasing. 
that I do. Uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> don't you laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> so Abraham Woodhull seemed to decide to take up the task of gathering information on the British army. And in one of his surviving correspondences, uh, Woodhull wrote to Benjamin Talmadge saying, I intend to visit 727 before long and think by the assistance of a 355 of my acquaintance shall be able to outwit them all. Ooh. So 727 was code for New York City and 355 was the code for a lady. Nice. Not just a woman, but a woman of high social status. And after two months after this letter was sent, detailed and accurate information on the British army was flowing to George Washington and the rest of the American forces. Ooh, okay. So we've got this lady. Yes. And if she's a lady, I'm assuming she must be reasonably close to the British? Well, this is what the suspicion is. There, there, are, there are a number of candidates as to who Agent 355 might be. And there are a few sort of contradictory things going on here. The supposition is that she may well have been the wife of some high-ranking British loyalist. Ooh, okay. Which would... Explain, also explain her ability to evade capture because at the time it was kind of considered, you know, that the wife held the same political opinions as the husband. Of course, that's why women shouldn't vote, as I said. <laughs> it just gives the husband an extra vote. <laughs> oh dear. So this is a reference to a figure who's now known as Agent 355. Which is damn cool. It's so cool, isn't it? Especially like like when you say Agent Three Five Five, you think like modern spying. You think like James yeah. Bond. The well, fact then it sounds like a chemical compound yeah, that was used to drive someone insane. That too. But I think just the fact that it's that title during the American Revolutionary War just makes it that much cooler. It's very cool. It does sound like it should be part of like MI Five. Yeah. Right. Now, unfortunately. This is actually the only direct reference to her in any of the surviving Culpering documents. She was basically so successful as a spy that she left no trace for us to follow. Brilliant. Yeah. So, okay, but they must have known, like, there must have been documents about her before, otherwise you wouldn't be able to have her in a code. Well, no, so, so by 355 may just have been the code for... A lady, as in just any general uh, high high social status woman. Right, okay. So possibly, or possibly not, it seems that often people are given code names rather than code numbers. So this may just be a general sort of, uh, I I know this woman who can be really helpful and she'll probably help us outwit them all. Um, So, like, this may be the one thing that Agent 355 actually did. What? What are you laughing at? Agent 355, gotta lie with them all. (laughs) Collect all the founding fathers. Trap them in tiny balls. Oh my gosh, amazing. (laughs) There probably is something like that. Do you remember when the church, uh, the Catholic Church, was doing their Pokemon Go app? Yes, I do remember that. Where you go around capturing saints. I'm sure you could do something in America where you have to go around and catch all the founding fathers. There's probably a million of them. I don't know. But surely that would go against the American message. Shouldn't they be for freedom? (laughs) Instead of capturing founding fathers and using them to fight in founding father duels. You know what? Before we continue, I'm going to actually look up how many founding fathers there were. Oh, okay. 
There were seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> I thought there were loads. It's really tricky because I have seen people, and probably completely erroneously, on the internet describe Abraham Lincoln as one of the founding fathers. Uh, like, which okay. obviously he wasn't, yeah. but they see him as like a founding member of like a founding creator of America yeah. as it is today. Right. So so some people are using it as a sort of general term for someone who was influential on America's history. Yeah. Right. And is male. And is male, of course. Oh. Of course. Oh, so yeah, totally. Women didn't do anything. Only men can <laughs> found America. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, I'm so sorry. I'm totally That's all right. Yeah. Agent 355, being an awesome lady in New York. Yes. Yeah, so as far as, like, hard facts go, and if you're, like, a proper history buff who's just like, I only want these facts, it's going to be a pretty short episode for you because it kind of ends there. Well, goodbye then. (laughs) But, but, I thought for the rest of this episode we could go full history channel on this and wildly speculate about the activities and the identity of Agent 355. She was an alien? Yes. She was an ancient alien? Yes. From the planet Nibiru? Yes. 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 Wonderful. All of that is true, and she's here today! Hello! <laughs> I'm Agent 355! I've got to say, this was not what I was expecting. No, I know, but I know all your secrets! I really thought that she would be less obviously an alien with a massive head. How dare you! I just don't understand it's how... It's a genetic condition! I just don't understand how with a voice like that... I'm going now! How did she manage to go undetected by the British? Oh, I don't know, but I think you just really upset her. Oh, no. She's oh, I have a... I was right? just trying to ask. It's all right, Agent 355. Put your tentacles away. It's all right. Dry your eyes. Dry your eyes. It's Okay. Anyway, so that's speculation over. Okay, fine. Um, let's look at some people who actually did exist. And to be honest, even if they aren't Agent 355, they did some pretty awesome things. So one of the uh, strong <laughs> candidates for Agent 355 was Anna Strong. She, exactly. She was a known spy in the Culper Ring, and her main job was to act as a sort of courier. A friend of Benjamin Tallmage, a guy called Caleb Brewster, was captain of a whaleboat. Okay. Which is a sort of long rowboat, kind of like a long ship, but without a mast and sails. Okay. Is it, is it anything to do with whaling? I mean, yes. They, they were typically used in whaling, which is where they get right. their name from. Okay, cool. But also, thinking about it being like a long ship, Caleb Brewster uh, was widely known and hated by the British because he would regularly make raids on British shipping lines around the Long Island Sound. Okay. I think it's something to do with longships. It just makes people want to raid. Are they, like, really fast longships? Is that one of their deals? Yeah. So, like, if you're going to do, like, gun running. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Nice. That's really cool. And also, I appreciate the fact that once again, he was using a longship against the English. Yes, exactly. It's I, it's just something about longships, I think. Yeah, yeah. They just hate the English. Yeah. But anyway, because of this, it was difficult for him to land safely uh, because, you know, the British were after him. Of course. So he had... Uh, it's believed that he had six locations that he had designated as safe where he might dock. So, of course, it's important for Tolmage to be able to know 
where he was. He didn't want to turn up and he's just like, he's yeah. somewhere else. What would happen was Anna Strong mm-hmm. would get in touch with Brewster and would signal uh, the location to Tolmage by means of her washing line. Oh my god, okay. The number of handkerchiefs hanging out to dry would denote which of the six locations Brewster was staying, so Tolmage could go and meet him. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So this is one of those things that could only really work during the American Revolution revolutionary times. Could you imagine if nowadays a woman was regularly hanging out handkerchiefs? You'd just be on that in a second. You'd be like, why has this woman got <laughs> so many fucking handkerchiefs? I mean, I'm just happy that there are just six locations. Could you imagine if there'd been like 18? There's like, Jesus woman, how are you getting through so many handkerchiefs all the time? I guess like, it does make sense for the era because if you did that whole like, my husband must have a fresh handkerchief every day and so must I and so must however many millions of kids we've got, (laughs) then maybe they were like, hang on, why has she only got two handkerchiefs out today? Why is she being so slovenly with her children? I like to imagine that she's got to pretend that she's got like 14 children, but it's just the two that she just keeps putting different wigs on. (laughs) Little Josiah was just really messy last week and got through two handkerchiefs in one day. (sighs) So what we know is that she's already got her chops when it comes to espionage. Sure. But... And laundry. I mean, yeah. That's a hell of a lot to get through. But I mean, it seems unlikely that she is Agent 355, partly because, obviously, she was known in the Culper Ring. Yeah. So using that in a missive may not uh, it may not be pointless. I mean, why not just give her a code name at that point? But also the fact that, as you suggested, and has been suggested, Agent 355 may have been a member of a high-ranking British loyalist family, which Anna Strong was not. Yeah, if she's doing her own laundry and kind of yeah. pondering whether she would come under the heading of a lady. Yeah, I mean, she was from quite a wealthy family. Her father was a colonel and her great-grandfather was a justice of the Supreme Court in 1691. Nice. So I guess it kind of depends upon your interpretation of lady a bit. Yeah, that's true. And I've got to bear in mind always that we're thinking about America at that time where it was a lot more, like down to earth than yeah. uh, England was at the same era. Yeah. You see what I mean? Like, they've got that whole homesteading spirit thing going on, don't they? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the other things that kind of confuses matters when it comes to it, because not only do we have to interpret is a lady just a woman or a high social status woman, we've also got is that a high social status American woman or a high yeah. social status British woman? Because at the time, obviously, those would be very different classes. I mean, it's like, I've been rereading um, a lot of Jane Austen at the moment, and there's this moment in Pride and Prejudice when Mrs. Bennet takes loads of pride in the fact that her daughters would never cook. Hmm. And that's, like, seen as reasonably high class. Yeah. And they're not meant to be super high class in Pride and Prejudice. They're upper middle. Um, but she's trying to contend with people who are even one step above her. Yeah. And would never be considered ladies. Yeah. Um, so I suppose I'm always thinking about it from that kind of lens. Whereas I suspect that if you're living in one of the, like, expanding cities in America, then mm. you're more likely to actually do your own housework. Yeah. True. But talking about Jane Austen, actually, this does explain, if you've been reading a lot of it recently, why I've noticed that you've been trying to throw so many balls, despite the fact it's lockdown, and why you keep wandering around talking about eligible bachelors. It is terribly hard to throw a proper assembly room ball 
in this time. Because so many gentlemen will agree to come to the ball, but then they won't ask anyone to dance with them. <laughs> it is shocking manners. <laughs> Mr. Darcy does not dance. Why? Why does he not dance? Social distancing, madam. Social distancing. <laughs> you can't kiss anyone on the hand because you've got a mask on. Oh, dear. So back to Agent 355. Another candidate could be Robert Townsend's sister, uh, which would explain how easily he recruited her into the ring and her loyalty to her brother, who himself was particularly keen about keeping his identity secret. I mean, we know who he is now because he was one of the main figures in it. And it's yeah. hard to, like, completely erase yourself from history. But, I mean, this would make sense as to why uh, he would keep the identity of his sister secret so much too. Or maybe it's a trait that runs in the family. Maybe they're just a bunch of paranoid f***ers. <laughs> um, there is a legend that uh, Sarah Townsend was key to uncovering the plot of a treacherous general who I'll talk about in just a little bit. Uh, but it seems that this story may have begun about 100 years after the fact, so Ooh, it may okay. just be some romanticising. I mean, it's cool, and even if Sarah Townsend wasn't 355, it's possible that the actual 355 did assist in uncovering a major plot. Also, just a side note, there's another possibility that rather than Robert Townsend's sister, it was Robert, Robert Townsend's common-law wife, who he basically fell in love with and knocked up. He had a common-law wife? Yeah. Scandalous. I know, right? Okay. Um, there's not much to that, to be honest. I think, again, it's mostly romanticising the past and being like, oh, he worked closely with this woman who was like this super cool spy and he fell in love with her and, and got her pregnant. Yeah. I mean, it kind of gets less romantic. Well, depending on your view of romantic, but... Did he ever make an honest woman of her or adopt the child or I, anything like that? I believe not. As far as I'm aware... The supposed child is Robert Townsend Jr., which was the name of his uh, nephew. Ooh. So, I mean, if, if you want to be, like, wildly speculating, and I do, uh, it could very well be that Robert Townsend knocks up Agent 355, she gives birth to the boy, and, mm -hmm. the, and Robert Townsend gives it to his brother and is like, raise this child as yours because, you know, this is a scandal for me. I love it. It's like a cross between James Bond and Game of Thrones. Mm. But back to the treacherous general. Mm. During 1777, the chief of British intelligence housed in New York was Major John Andre, who had been in negotiations with a disillusioned American general by the name of Benedict Arnold. Now, I don't know how much you know about Benedict Arnold, but I actually knew very little. I knew some things about Benedict Arnold, but they're entirely from watching that one British episode of The Fairly Odd Parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I know most of my references to Benedict Arnold from TV as well. Like, yeah. I think they reference him in New Girl. Uh, in community as well. Uh, I think I just got a general implication that he was a bad guy and a traitor or something. Yeah, that's, that's essentially all I knew as well. Like, they did a whole skit in the Fairly Old Parents episode where it's like, Benedict Arnold refused to sign this thing and, like, made a big deal about it. It was like, ha, 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 because I'm so evil. And that's, like, literally all my ideas about Benedict Arnold. I mean, it seems he was a bit of a shit because he was basically, he was an American general who was fed up because he wasn't getting enough money out of fighting the revolution. Right. Okay. So Andre was in negotiations with him uh, to 
essentially let his fort that Benedict Arnold was in charge of fall apart Mm -hmm. so that it was incredibly weak and British soldiers could pass through it easily. And he offered him either 10 or 20,000 pounds. Ooh. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. Jesus. Or it may be that Arnold asked for that much. Um, That's a lot of money. Yeah. Like, to put that in perspective for listeners, um, in Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy is, like, super, super wealthy and he has 10,000 pounds a year. Yeah. So I guess, like, the equivalent of, like, 100,000 now or something. I mean, I've got some count... I think it's more, to be honest, because of some calculations I've got later on. So Arnold was asking for a lot of money, and Andre was offering some money. The two were in negotiations about it, but it definitely seemed that Benedict Arnold, super keen on defecting, as long as he got paid for it. Do you know what? I hate him too now. (laughs) I know, right? So Andre was moving behind enemy lines one day, so in American territory, and, of course, the British uniform you know at the time was... Very notable. Very bright red. Exactly. So he was wearing civilian clothes and he encountered a bunch of American soldiers who immediately, they were dressed in civilian clothes as well. Mm -hmm. And there was this like weird exchange where both sides were trying to work out what side the other person was actually on. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. It effectively ended with Andre asking them flat out if they were Tories. Okay. And they said... Yes. (laughs) And he was like, awesome, I've got all this secret information to go. And he goes, psych, we're actually American soldiers. And they took him prisoner. Oh my God. So he was going to be taken to a nearby fort and to be tried by a general. Mm -hmm. That general nearby was Benedict Arnold. Oh shit, okay. So this group of soldiers, happily going along, they get a message from Benjamin Tolmage. And this message basically says, do not fucking take him to Benedict (laughs) Arnold. At this point, George Washington himself gets involved and he goes and does a unexpected inspection of Benedict Arnold's garrison. Right. And finds it in complete disrepair. There's a complete lack of discipline. This was part of the plot to weaken it. Uh, So Washington realised that, you know, the information he'd been given was true. Arnold had been turned by Andre. Yeah. So, how did Tolmage know that Benedict Arnold was a traitor? And how did he know that Andre was the contact? It's possible that Agent 355 may have seduced Andre. (laughs) It was well known that Major John Andre was a charming and charismatic man, a bit of a ladies' man. He wrote a great deal of poetry regarding the different women who were the objects of his affection. Okay. It does seem possible, given the time frame and the location, that it's like these people were in the same area at the same time. Right. That Agent 355 had encountered him, possibly seduced him for information. There is also some speculation that it may have been Major John Andre's sister instead, but that's less sexy, so... That really is. Let's pretend it was, like, super flirtatious. Yeah. Um, one of those, like... If you've ever seen the Loose Links, loose Lips Sink Ships poster um, oh, from yeah, World yeah. War One, where there's, like, an army captain and a pilot and somebody in the Navy, and they're all, like, sitting around with cigars and, like, this really beautiful, sexy lady, and it's like, ah, I'm mm. listening to everything you say. Major Andre. Major Andre, tell me, are you planning anything with Benedict Arnold? 
I'm planning many things with Benedict Arnold, but my dear, I first want to plan a few things with you. Oh, but General, you'll have to tell me a few things before we get down to business, no. and then immediately, please. Yeah. <laughs> because she's a fine, upstanding lady of the American <laughs> Revolution. I thought you just didn't want to continue in that bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so the final sort of candidate for the position of Agent 355 Sounds like a job interview just now uh, that I want to talk about. What qualifies you (laughs) as Agent 355? What are your weaknesses? Well, I think this candidate, I think, is the most likely. Okay. I don't have a great deal of evidence for that. Um, Is it just a gut feeling thing? It's a gut feeling because she is cool as hell. There is a couple of things, so we'll get to that. It's a woman called Elizabeth Bergen. To be honest, one of the main reasons I like to think of her as Agent 355 is how cool she was, because she's basically unknown. Okay. We have almost no information about her early life, who she was related to, what she did, anything like that. But what we do know is that the British were offering a reward of £200 for her capture. Cool. It's hard to directly translate that into today's money, but a rough guess puts it at just shy of £40,000. It's about forty-five dollars to $49,000. And in context, a British enlisted soldier could only hope to save that much money in about 20 years of service. Oh my god, I want to capture Elizabeth Bergen <laughs> for the money. Right? Like, this is a super large bounty for this woman. Yeah. Who we kind of know nothing about. Like, So do we know why they wanted her? Oh, well, we have a letter <gasps> written to a Reverend James Cavill in late 1779. Bergen is asking him for assistance, as she is a wanted woman at this point, because she has assisted in the escape of 200 or more American prisoners from British prison ships. Oh my god. Okay. That is hard to do, I would think. Yeah. Like, that's not just, like, opening a door and letting people out. How do you get 200 prisoners off a prison ship? Presumably with one of them long ships. I guess do, so. Do a bit of raiding, get a few prisoners escaped. Um, so, yeah. Uh, This is obviously really cool, but it also fits the timeline of when Agent 355 was active, which is 1778 to Mm -hmm. 1780. And it would explain why she stopped or doesn't really appear or anything like that. She was forced to flee uh, from New York. Yeah, okay. So some more possible evidence. Afterwards, Elizabeth Bergen wrote to George Washington himself directly, asking if he had any work that she could do to further help the war effort. And admittedly, the work that she offers is quite humble. Like, she offers to make and mend clothes. Okay, great. Which I think is great to directly send a letter to George Washington himself, being like, you got any ironing that needs doing? I'll do that. I mean, you've already said, though, they were talking in code through the letters. I mean, yeah. if you're writing to the general of an army, Mm. being like, can I do your laundry for you? Surely that means something else. You'd really hope so. Otherwise, I'm just imagining, like, a James Bond-esque figure just, yeah, just sitting at home doing the ironing for them. I'm just trying to to imagine how a general would respond to someone being like, I could be a washerwoman. It's like, (laughs) um, why are you talking to me about this? Well, I mean, you've got a point there. And, in fact, George Washington didn't have any work for her. So, I know, maybe she was just... A woman who had this weird notion that George Washington himself had some work for her. You okay. think you think that you think that's right? That's reasonable. 
You think that's reasonable, though, and a reasonable assumption? No. I, I need you to say yes for this. Yes. Well, you're wrong! Ah! <laughs> she wasn't given work, but she was given a very healthy pension, which she uh, drew from until 1787, when presumably she died. There seems to be no other reason why this would have stopped. But she was given a, like, fair and consistent wage for the rest of her life. Okay. Payment for services rendered as a spy, perhaps? Perhaps. Indeed. So, admittedly, I've gone off on a lot of speculation here. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm enjoying it massively. <laughs> I mean, as far as the evidence goes, we don't know if Agent 355 did more than one thing, whether she was really an agent in the ring or just someone that people knew. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that there were a number of women during the American Revolutionary War who did some really cool work as spies. And whether or not any of them are this mythical Agent 355, I just think it's really cool to read about them because, you know, they're missed out pretty much all the time. Like, we said said earlier on, we don't know a great deal about the American Revolutionary War. That's not an area of history that I think either of us have been particularly interested in before. Uh, mostly through Hamilton and Revolting. Yeah, too. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like, wherever we look at any part of history, though, we like if you look at it in any detail, you will find really cool ladies doing really cool stuff all the time, but you don't get taught it in your basic, like, English history classes. Exactly. So I just wanted, in this episode, to highlight some of the awesome things these women did, and who knows, maybe one of them was this Agent 355. Maybe she did all these things. She was a lover of Major Andre and uncovered the plot uh, by Benedict Arnold. Maybe she maybe she was Elizabeth Bergen and she got those 200 prisoners off the ship as well. Or maybe she was Anna Strong and she just sort of did day-to-day spy work, which is still pretty cool. I mean... It's still really dangerous exactly. to do. And also, it's just amazing that they used something that wouldn't get spotted by mm. men who presumably wouldn't be looking at your washing lines. Exactly. It's genius. It's so clever. As you say, like this was a dangerous profession. Uh, one of the other theories about the end of Agent 355 is there were records of a female spy being captured and hanged in 1780. So this was a life-risking job, and I think it's kind of important to, you know, look back on these women at the work they did and just praise them for it. And I mean, obviously men too, but women get left out of history way more than men do. Oh, sure. (laughs) Yeah. So that's all we have for today. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Thank you to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we have got a Gmail address now, which is ttwpod at gmail.com. Yep. We've got a Twitter handle as well, which is that time when four... Really? It's, yeah. <laughs> I've left Amelia in charge of setting up the Twitter account. You couldn't, like, make it that time when pod or something? No, it automatically gave me the handle. Like, the main thing is that... Oh, uh, okay, right. So what is the actual handle people can find? That time that when That time when. Oh. Like, so the actual handle is that time when for, but if you look up that time when, you'll find it. <laughs> okay. And that is our name. <laughs> On the, on the thing. We're so professional. <laughs> I'm sitting on the floor at the moment. You're ruining the mystique. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you very much for listening, and we hope to see you again next week.